Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Leviticus. I'm going to try to finish this lesson tonight and um, try not to spend a lot of time on review, just try to get through the lesson, get to the new portions of this lesson and try to finish that if I can. Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 through 32. Leviticus 27, verses 30 through 32. It says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. And so tonight we are hopefully concluding this series of study that I've entitled The Truth About Tithing. This will be, if my calculations are correct, part four even though my notes still say part three. That's where I'm at tonight. As just help me, Jesus. So as you put your Bibles down and go to the Lord in prayer, would you say a special prayer for me? The Lord will help me tonight to gird up the loins of my mind and bring things together. I need his touch here tonight. Let's talk to the Lord, everybody, Jesus. thank you now. We praise you, oh God. Can we just give the Lord some praise right now, everybody? Let's give him some praise. Let's love him together. I love you, Jesus. I praise you, Master. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. God bless you. You may be seated. So let me do just a brief review tonight. Um, we have talked about over the last few weeks the fact that so many discount the importance of tithing because they say it is an Old Testament doctrine. And we've talked about the importance of the Old Testament. We've talked about how that all Scripture is inspired of God, or literally it is God-breathed, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, we talked about how everything that we believe and preach and teach has to be rooted in the Old Testament in order to be a valid doctrine. It's got to have its roots in the Old Testament. In fact, we went through and showed you how the Apostle Paul reached into the Old Testament and dealt with, in fact, tithing to talk about how the New Testament church system should be. We talked about the law. We talked about what part of the law was fulfilled in Christ and therefore no longer binding upon us because there were three parts to the law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. And the, the civil law dealt with the Jewish people as a nation. We're not a part of that. does not apply to us. Ceremonial law dealt with the Jewish people as a religion. We are not a part of that. That does not apply to us. But the moral law supersedes the Jewish people. It expresses the morality of God. It's binding upon everyone. 
It began before Moses ascended Mount Sinai, and it continued after Jesus went to Mount Calvary. Well, praise God. It is still binding upon us today. And then we talked about in last week's lesson how that the New, the, uh, New Testament also addresses the subject of tithing. It's not just an Old Testament doctrine. We showed you, gave you more than one witness where Jesus himself instructed us to pay tithes. We showed you where Paul instructed us to pay tithes. And we showed you where it is addressed in the book of Hebrews, which I personally believe was written by the Apostle Paul, but some don't. So we're listing that as a possible third author. Uh, whether it's two or three is irrelevant because two or three is all that's mandated to have a valid witness in the Scripture. And so we understand that the New Testament is not strict, uh, the tithing is not strictly an Old Testament doctrine, but it is a New Testament mandate as well. So that's what we've covered in the previous three weeks. Let us now begin to look at part four of this, and we're going to move on into hopefully some new territory tonight. So we've talked about why, why we pay tithes. We do it because God said we have to. God said he expects it. God said this is something that is required of us. Jesus said we ought to do it. Amen. And now I want to talk about not just the why, but the how. I want to talk a little bit about the actual practice itself. And the first thing that I want to tell you about tithing and about the how of tithing is that you must never keep the tithe. You can't do that. Let's read Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have ye robbed thee? In tithes and offering? Ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. Now, now let, me, let me just let me interrupt for a minute. This is off the subject of what I'm dealing with at the moment. But it does show, again, another witness of something that I've been saying. When God instituted tithing, this tithe, the moral law tithe, uh, he instituted it for the livelihood of those who minister around the things of God. This is the way God instituted it. Now, this just serves as yet another proof. He said, bring the tithes into the storehouse. Why? That there may be meat in my that house. That there may be meat in my... Now, 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 let's think about this. Why does there need to be meat at God's house? Is God going to eat the meat? Well, God's not going to eat it. Who's going to eat the meat? Those who serve in God's house. Right? So this is, this is exactly what I've been telling you. This is the way God established the tithe. So he said, he said uh, bring the tithes into the storehouse so that there can be meat in my house. Now, he had started out by saying, you have robbed me by not paying your tithes. Right. And this is really what I want to stress tonight is that the Bible is very clear that you are not to keep the tithe yourself. Right. To do so, God said, is to steal. And you're not just stealing from anybody. Read, read verse 8 again. Will a man rob God? Will a man rob whom? God. Whom? God. God. You're not robbing the preacher. You're robbing God. He said, yet, yet ye have robbed you have me. robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? How have we robbed you? 
in tithes and offerings. And God said you did it through your tithes and offerings. Now, listen to me, saints. Do we really think, somebody says, is tithing a matter of salvation? Can I be saved if I don't pay my tithes? Well, let's let the Bible answer the question. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, God said if you don't pay your tithes, you're doing what? You're stealing, right? You're robbing. What do you call someone who robs or steals? A thief. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous, not, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of shall God? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Read. Be not deceived. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, Neither fornicators nor, idolaters, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, adulterers, nor effeminate, effeminate, nor abusers of themselves. Of themselves with now, now listen, this is a this is a nasty list. This is a vile list. Fornicators. Idolaters. Adulterers. Effeminate. Homosexuals. This is a bad list. What's verse 10 say? Nor thieves. Nor Thieves. Boy, isn't that amazing? The Lord put thieves in the very same list with the idolaters, the homosexuals, the adulterers. Thieves fall into the same category. Nor thieves. Nor covetous, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor, revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit, the, shall kingdom inherit the kingdom of God. The Reagan Revised Version simply says they won't be saved. So here's what he said under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. If you are involved in sexual immorality of any kind, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, if you're involved in idolatry, if you are a thief, you're not going to heaven. That sounds like it's a matter of salvation to me. And he's writing to a church, not to sinners. 1 Corinthians is not written to the sinners in Corinth. It's written to the church at Corinth. So he's telling the church, if any of you are guilty of these things, and some of them were. In fact, you read the, that, that letter of 1 Corinthians, you'll find out just about everything he's named here in chapter 6. He addresses individually in some other chapter. He addresses sexual immorality. He addresses tithes and offerings. He addresses idolatry. He addresses all of these things in this letter to the Corinthians. It's all there. And so he's saying to them, please understand, I'm not just giving you a list of my preferences that I would really rather you not do these things. He's saying if you do them, you can't be saved. So if God says that you steal from him by not paying tithes, that makes you a thief of the utmost proportion because God is your victim. Now, if we steal from one another and we're going to be lost, what happens if we steal from God? Do you think God's going to let us off? Now, God didn't say to the Israelites in, in, in Malachi chapter 3, he didn't say, you've robbed me, except those who can't afford to do it. God has already established this is mine doesn't belong to you, 
It's not a matter of what you can afford to do. It's mine. And if you try to keep it, you're stealing what's mine. That 10%, the first 10% of your income, God has just loaned to you with the full intention you're going to return it to him. Now, on one of our, I think it may have been the very first lesson I had, Brother uh, Jared Hilton hand me the keys to his truck. Some of you that were here will remember that. And, and then I made a big deal about if I give him the keys to this uh, 2022 uh, Toyota, um, I haven't really done anything because he handed me those keys. They were his to, be, to begin with. And me handing them to him, I didn't give him anything. I returned what was his. But if I stuck those keys in my pocket and refused to give them to him, even if I were to say, look, my car's broke down, I don't have any transportation. That doesn't give me an excuse to pocket his keys and drive off in his vehicle. Is anybody understanding what I'm saying? So you say, well, I can't afford to pay tithes, but wait a minute, that's God's money. And if you don't return it to God, it doesn't matter what you can't afford because it's not yours anyhow. If you pocket his money and spend it for your own needs, you have stolen from God. And that makes you a thief. The second thing you need to know, not only must you not keep the tithe, you must not control the tithe. Now, thankfully, that's not a problem with this church. But let me just tell you, it's not the same way everywhere, even in oneness Pentecostal churches. So it never hurts for me to address it. I know how lessons get out over the Internet. And just maybe, just maybe, somebody will have the intestinal fortitude to share this lesson with some church board member who thinks that a church ought to be able to control the tithing. If somebody's listening, and, and, and please understand, I am not condoning listening. If your pastor doesn't approve you listening to this, I, I've come under fire for this. Um, I guess I have to start putting a label on our website. If your pastor does not approve, you're not authorized to listen. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to fix all that. That's, um, but I'm just saying if somebody is listening and you have a situation where your church is trying to control the tithe, I hope that you'll hand this recording off to the powers that be and let them hear what this preacher has to say because what I have to say is what the Bible has to say. Let's look again at a passage we examined last week, but I want to look at it from a little different perspective tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he, it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of this hope, of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, it is a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things. Now, now we, we talked about this last week, but let me just refresh your memory about this passage. Paul makes it clear that when this was written into the law of Moses, the idea was if you've got an ox that is plowing the corn, you are not to put a muzzle on that ox at any point. As long as the ox is plowing, you are to allow him to eat freely from the field in which he is laboring. Let him eat what he wants. Let him have his fill. Don't put a muzzle on him. 
Don't, and, and, and listen, I know a lot of times we talk about muzzling somebody, we're thinking, stop them from talking, but that's not what the law was dealing with. It, right. We're dealing with an ox here. This has nothing to do with it speaking. This was dealing with how much it's going to eat, how much it's going to take right. Right. of what's in front of it. And the law said, don't limit that ox. And then Paul comes along and said, do you think God cared how much the ox ate? Do you think God was concerned if the ox ate one ear of corn or a hundred ears of corn? Do you think that mattered to God? Or did God do this to teach us a lesson? And then he answers his own question. He said, for our sakes, no doubt this was written. Now what he means by that is, it is the ministry that is out here plowing your corn. We're the ones that's, that are doing the work to make your lives productive. And the law that was written back then has an application for the church today, and that is you let that spiritual ox Take as much as he needs. And don't misunderstand that. It's not as much as you think he needs. Really, it's as much as he wants. And I've never had to raise oxen, but I have, I did raise a pig as a, as a child. We had a, we had a pig. We had some horses. I know those horses, uh, if you turn them loose, um, they would sometimes eat and eat and eat and make themselves sick. Uh, I, I can assume that there are some oxen that probably would do the same thing. But God said, regardless, if you're going to use them to work, you let them decide how much they're going to take of their labors. And Paul said, the purpose of this is for the ministry. And then he asked that final question in verse 11, if we've sown to you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? And I dealt with this. The fact of the matter is, what you are receiving from the ministry has a far longer lasting impact than what the ministry is receiving from you. The lessons that you're taught, the messages that are preached to you are going to get you to eternity. And I believe they're going to remain with you throughout eternity. I really believe with all of my heart there are going to be times when I reach heaven that God's going to prompt to my mind. In fact, I just think we're going to have perfect memory when we get over there, and I think there are going to be things that we're going to understand, and we're going to see how there was a crossroads in our life, and God sent a preacher our way, and he told us exactly what needed to be done, and as a result of that message, we made the right choice. We kept from making shipwreck. It brought us to heaven. We were there. We are there. We're we're saved because somebody invested in us, somebody preached to us, somebody helped us with a message, with a lesson. And we're going to walk the streets of gold knowing that we're here because of the efforts of the ministry. But I can promise you when we get over there, none of us are going to remember much about the money that crossed through our wallets or our bank accounts. And that money is certainly not going to help us get there. Now, it could keep us from getting there. The Apostle Paul said the love of money is the root of all evil. And so we fall in love with it it can certainly keep us. If we start serving it, it can keep us from going. But using it is not going to get us there.
And so what we are reaping from you is not nearly as beneficial as what you are reaping from the ministry. So don't try to control it. The word muzzle means to restrain, to restrict, to repress, or to suppress. Did you get that? To muzzle, to restrain, to restrict, to repress, or to suppress. I don't see how a church board can think they can come in and set a percentage or a limit without violating this passage of Scripture. They are restricting. They are restraining. They are repressing. Look at Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 to 22. And behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth in Israel for an inheritance for their I service. I gave that to the priests for their inheritance. For their service, for the which, service they which they serve. Even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Right. Neither must the children of Israel henceforth come nigh the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear sin and die. Now, now I want you to I want you to notice something about this. Can, can we put that verse 22 back up there again? Now, in verse 21, what's, what's the subject of verse 21? Uh, read that again. And behold, I have given the children, I've of, given Levi, the children of Levi all the tenth all in Israel. The tenth in Israel. So there's the subject. What is the subject? It's the tithe. I've given the Levites the tithe for an inheritance, right? That's what he's talking about. That's what this whole verse is about. I did it because of the service which they serve. I've given them the tithe. Now, the very next thing he says, verse 22, is, Neither must the children of Israel henceforth come nigh the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear sin and die. Now, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How, how do we fit this into context? The subject is the tithe. And now all of a sudden he says, and so children of Israel, don't you come near the tabernacle. But what did he just tell them? To bring their tithe to the tabernacle. And so he says, once you bring it, you drop it off and forget it. Don't come back. Don't come looking for it. Don't ask for a refund. Don't look for a rebate. You leave it there and don't even think about trying to come back after it. He said... Don't come nigh the tabernacle of the congregation, lest what? They bear sin and lest die. Lest they bear sin and die. die. Yes, well, I'm telling you, God was pretty serious about this tithing thing, wasn't he? Yes, sir. He was pretty serious. You know, and, and I know people who, who honestly, I, I've, I've had people years gone by, another time, another place, another city, another state, that, that thought they would take their tithe and put it in an, a Sunday school offering envelope. And in their minds, I'm still paying my tithe, but I'm making sure that preacher doesn't get it. No, you, you know what you've just done? You carried the tabernacle, but you guided where it got put. You've come near the tabernacle to touch the tithe. And that is not what God wants nor allows. The tithe is holy to the Lord. Does that, does that phrase ring a bell at all? Does anybody...
Can anybody think about something else that God ever said was holy to him? And he said, don't touch it. Don't take it. Um, can you think of some things that, that God said were so holy he didn't want you to? How about the Ark of the Covenant? God said, don't touch it. And, and they're, they're, they're carrying it on an ox cart and it looks like it's going to fall to the ground and Yuzah thinks, man, I can't let that happen. This is the most holy vessel in all of Israel. I can't let it hit the ground. I got to do something. I got to protect this. And he put forth his hand and touched it and what happened? He died. Because God said, uh-uh, that's mine. You don't touch it. If it's God's, you don't touch it. Anybody remember what God said about Jericho? Jericho was the first fruits of the conquest of Canaan. When Israel came across to inherit the promised land, the very first city they were to conquer was Jericho. That's the first fruits. The first fruits are holy unto God. And God said, don't touch it. You're going to offer this whole city as a burnt offering to me. You can't have anything out of it. Now, that's not normal. You understand? We forget things because we don't deal with this. But, but, but let's go back to the ancient art of war. When, when, a, when, when one civilization overthrew another city, state, country, what did they do? Well, they didn't always burn it. What, what, in fact, rarely would they burn it without first plundering it. They're going to take whatever's good out of that city. Right? That's, that's the spoils of war. That's the way war is fought. In fact, let me just, I'm, I'm way off the subject here, but let me just set the record straight for those who think Israel is a terrible occupier of land, as the Palestinians claim. I would just let you know, all you got to do, for those of you who were not alive at this time, I would challenge you to go back to 1967 when several nations decided to try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. They invaded Israel, not vice versa. And Israel, a small nation, only a few years old, They'd been founded in 1948. This was 1967. Do the math. That's not even 20 years. They haven't had time to build a huge army. They haven't had time to amass a giant wealth. The Palestinians, quote unquote, the Arab nations around them decided to overthrow them and destroy them. They invaded this infant nation, and you know what happened? In six days, Israel drove them out and gained new territory. That's how war works, my friend. If they didn't want Israel owning that land, they should have never crossed the borders. Let me just say it again. If they didn't want Israel in control of that territory, they should have stayed home in 1967. But when they crossed the line, they made themselves vulnerable. And I'm telling you, the nation of Israel deserves every inch of territory they're in control of today. Because that's what happens with war. That's what happens. This is not Israel's fault. They're not illegal occupiers. They're the rightful owners now. Right. Yes, sir. Well, it's another lesson for another day, but it's true nonetheless. W 
which, you see, Israel's another thing that is God's. And you just don't mess with them. I don't care who you are. Hitler, I, I don't care who you are. You don't, you just don't. God's going to take care of them. He's going to protect them. All right, I, I got to get off that. So, Jericho, I was saying, Jericho, the spoils of war, this is how war works. Normally, any invading army that would overthrow Jericho would have taken possession of everything in Jericho. But God said, not this time. This is the first fruits. This is mine. You offer it as a burnt offering unto me. You can't have any of it. So the very next city that they go to conquer is what? Anybody know? AI. Or the actual pronunciation is I, but most of us say AI. Um, so I'll use that. AI is the second city they go to. And it's just a small little town, not nearly the size of Jericho. And so Joshua says, we don't even have to send the whole army. We can send just a few folks. And we'll overthrow this. But they didn't. They were defeated. And Israelites were killed. Why? Why? Because somebody took what God said was his. God said, everything in Jericho belongs to me. But Achan saw a garment he liked, some silver, some gold, and he decided he'd keep what was God's. It brought defeat to the nation and death to innocent people. And the only way to fix it was to take Achan, his family, and all of his possessions and stone them, put them to death because they had taken what was God's. When God says it's holy, you don't touch it. Listen, church, that's why I tell you, and I mean this, my wife can tell you, if there is anything about which I am, I don't know if you call it obsessive, compulsive, I don't know what you call it, but, but, but if there's anything that, that I am absolutely stressed over, it's my tithes. I, I cannot figure out how people overlook it. Because, I mean, the minute that a deposit goes into my account, I don't want any time to pass before I make sure my tithes are taken care of and my offering to God is taken care of. It's first fruits for me. It's not the last thing I do. It's the first thing I do because the first fruits belong to God, not the last fruits. It's not just any 10%. It's the first 10%. That's what God wants. We give him the first fruits of our increase. And I'm telling you, and, and I'm so particular about this. Brother Goff, there, there's, there are times that, that I, I make a deposit and I write my tithe check, my offering check, and then I realize, oh yeah, somebody handed me some cash or something, and I'll sit down and write a second tithe check and offering cash. I, 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 offering check. I'm telling you, I don't let any time pass. When I know I've had an increase, God's getting his. Just the way it's going to be for me. And I think everybody else really ought to be that obsessed with it. I think it ought to be that important to everybody else, not just to me. I'm going to send it off to my pastor. I'm going to make, and that's, that's the way. See, one of the things I haven't dealt with in all this is that tithing really is an act of submission. And I think I did point that out in the first lesson, perhaps. Here men receive tithe. 
You're presenting your tithe. This is why God set it up this way. It's an act of submission. You're not just writing a check to the church, though that may be whose name is on the check, but you understand that this is a way you show you are in submission to the man of God in your life. And I'm going to tell you, people who have a problem with tithing have a problem with submission and vice versa. It's an absolute fact. My pastor knows I am in complete submission to him and one of the ways I show it is I regularly mail him my tithe. I used to do it differently. I used to set up a tithing account and and I knew men that did that and they'd spread it, still do, spread it to different ministers. Do different. I, I just am, am convinced scripturally tithing is my act of submission to the man of God in my life. And my tithe therefore goes to my pastor. So for the members of the Truth Church, your tithe can go in here to the Truth Church funneled then to the pastor but but for me my pastor's not here in this church and so my tithing goes to him all right I, I got to move on my, my time is slipping away and I've got to finish this lesson so um, so you you must not keep the tithe, you must not control the tithe, you must not spend the tithe. Leviticus 27 verses 30 and 31. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithe, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. Yeah, I've talked about this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm going to tell you God charges a huge interest on those who decide the tithe ought to go somewhere else. You decide you, 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 you're not going to pay your tithes. God says, you want to make it up? The fifth part. That's not 5%. One-fifth is 20%. So if, if, you, if you owe God $100 in tithe and you decide to spend it somewhere else and you say, oh, yeah, I better catch up on my tithe, God said... 20% interest. It's no longer just $100. It's $120. You know what? I think I'll just pay it on time. I think I'll just stay current. Thank you, Jesus. That's a steep interest. I mean, that's, that's credit card level interest there. 20%. Um. By the way, I don't think I've addressed this, and I've got to try to cover everything because I intend to finish this tonight. Somehow, I'm going to finish it. Do you pay tithes on gross or net? I get asked that question all the time. Tithes on gross or net? Well, first of all, when God instituted the tithe, there was no such thing as gross or net. Didn't exist. The idea didn't exist. And do you understand that net really just means after... The government has taken their part of what you've earned. So let me ask you something. Why should the government get the first whatever percentage and then you tithe on what's left? That, that just kind of sounds to me like you're treating the government better than you're treating God. If you hire on for $10 an hour, then by my simple calculations, you owe God a dollar for every hour you work. I mean, that's not complicated. That's really easy to figure out. And I know there are some people who will argue, well, but we never see that money, therefore it's never really an increase to us. I understand all of that. I, I know. I know. I, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you this. 
couple things. If you really are convinced, because I can't prove to you scripturally that you have to pay on your gross income. I just believe that's really what the scripture is saying, but I can't prove it. If you're determined you're only going to pay on net, then when you get a return on your taxes, you're going to owe tithe on that return. Furthermore, if you get earned income credit and other things that you didn't pay in, you're going to owe tithes on that. That becomes an increase as well. But I can tell you this, the story, and I think I may have told this in one of the early lessons, and I'm trying to hurry through this, but the story was told of an old country preacher who was teaching on tithing at the end. Uh, one very well-educated and wealthy man stood up and said, well, I have a question, preacher. Suppose I bought a cow for X number of dollars. And then it cost me a certain amount to have that cow vaccinated and it cost me a certain amount to feed that cow through her life. And then she had a calf and I had to call in a vet to take care of some problems that she had. And I spent X number of dollars on the vet and then there, there was a certain amount that it cost me to get her down to the market. And uh, I had to spend money on getting her to the market and then finally I sold her for X amount. How much of that do I owe in tithe? And the preacher stood there for a minute and he said, well, brother... Let me just tell you, I ain't smart enough to keep up with all your math, but I am smart enough to know this. If you cut it close on God, God's going to cut it close on you. I had a friend who asked it this way. He said, grosser net. He said, well, let me, let me ask you a question in answer to your question. How do you want God to bless you? Do you want God calculating down to the minute cent? Or as one man, honestly, that was in my home church, he actually did this, cut a penny in half because his tithe came out to a half a cent. He really did. He honestly did that. That's, that's, that's not a made-up story. He did it. I don't want God cutting my pennies in half. Well, hallelujah. Um, parents, I'm just trying to wrap this up, trying to give you some final thoughts. Parents, you need to teach your children to tithe. If you give them um, a, an, an allowance, they need to tithe on their allowance. It's an increase to them. They need to learn to tithe. They need to learn to give an offering. Ephesians 6, 4 says this. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Teach them how to do what God wants them to do. Now, I've addressed this before, Proverbs 22, 6. I'm trying to get through as many of these as I can, as quickly as I can. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I've, I've dealt with this verse before. This does not mean what a lot of people think that it means. A lot of people think that this means that if you will raise them in church, then at some point the promise is they will come back to God if they ever leave. That's not what this verse is saying. The literal translation of this verse is train up a child in his way. And when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Another way to say this is as the tree is bent, so it will grow. However you train that child, that's the way the child's going to live. The real idea behind this, and I dealt with this a few weeks ago, don't have time to get into it in depth, but the real idea behind this in the original Hebrew is to touch the palate of the child. That is to create an appetite in the child for certain things. And whatever you create the appetite to desire, that's what they will desire. If you teach them to desire to have a hunger for the things of God, they may stray from God, but they'll never get away from that hunger. They may find ways to get around it. They may spend their life ignoring it and fighting against it. But they'll never forget the appetite that's there. Right? right. right? 
After 43 years of being married to my wife, I can tell you nobody can satisfy my appetite like she can. Nobody can cook like she can cook. I don't care how good you do it. I don't care how wonderful you think your recipe is. I'm just telling you now, it's not as good as my wife can do it. That's just a fact. She can fix it better than you can. Because there's just been an appetite created in me of eating the way she fixes it for the last 43 years. That's the way I like it. Because it's touched my palate for more than four decades. Well, hallelujah. I'm sitting here thinking about her lasagna and, oh, Jesus. Uh, don't even get me started on her desserts because I can't eat them as much as I want them. They, they, they literally, it, it, too much sugar, as most of you know now, will literally make me nauseated. But I'm telling you, when it comes to some of her desserts, I'll suffer a little nausea <laughs> to have a taste of that cherry cream cheese pie. Mm. Yes, sir. Nobody can do it like she can. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody can fix a banana pudding. I got to stop. All right. You get the point. So create an appetite in your children for the things of God. Teach them to love doing what's right. Teach them to love to pray. Teach them to love to read their Bible. Teach them to love to come to church. Teach them to love to pay their tithe. And they'll never get away from that appetite. Well, praise God. Amen. All right, so how then is a church supposed to be supported? Well, as I've already pointed out to you, it was never done through the tithe. It was done through the free will offerings. I don't have time to read all of these portions of Scripture, but Exodus 35, verses 4 through 9, if you're taking notes, Exodus 35, verses 4 through 9, 1 Chronicles 28, verses 14 to 18, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, the way that it was built, the way it was taken care of was never through the tithing. It was through the free will offerings of the people. That's what God wants. Uh, we have not given to God until we've gone above the tithe. I've talked about that. Let's read Luke 17, 10. I'm trying to finish. I've got just a couple minutes. Bear with me for just a few minutes here. I've only got a few portions of Scripture left. We'll be done. Uh, Luke 17, 10 says this. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Not, this verse is never more true than when it comes to finances. When you're commanded, you're commanded to give God 10%, but you are unprofitable until you've gone above that 10%. That's when you really start giving to God. Now, Numbers chapter 15, I don't have time for this. Numbers chapter 15, verses 5 through 12, the Bible talks about an offering that the people were to bring to God. And it talks about going out and measuring a certain amount of wine, a certain amount of, of oil, uh, take a certain measurement of flour. In other words, God said, I don't want you just throwing some concoction together and bringing that to me as your offering. I want you to prepare it. Now, they couldn't do this once they got to the tabernacle or the temple. Are you understand what I'm saying? I'm afraid I'm going through this so fast you're not getting the idea. But when God laid out what an offering had to be, they couldn't wait till they got to his house to determine what they would give him. They had to determine that ahead of time. They had to prepare to give. God didn't accept just anything. Look, look back at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel. God didn't accept just anything. 
You say, well, I'll just give God this. God doesn't accept just anything. God wants us to think about what we're going to give him and to prepare. We should come to church prepared to give. Now, I'm not telling you you have to do this, but again, I'm just telling you how it works in my house. I figure how many services are we going to have? I'm going to, I'm going to pay my tithe on Sunday morning. But we have church Sunday night and we have church Tuesday night. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure I've got two checks. Because I'm going to give God something each time I come to his house. And so I've already told you that it's just been my practice to give God 10% above my tithe. And so what I do is I write one check for 5% and another check for 5%. I have two checks that I set back. So I've got my tithe check. I've got a check for 5% and a second check for 5%. And that way, when I come to church, I'm going to give God my tithe one service. I'm going to give him 5% one service. I'm going to give him 5%. It's all determined. It's prepared. It's just the way I do it. So that every time I come to the house of God, I've got something to give and I've prepared it ahead of time. I don't just open my, my, my wallet and say, mm, let's see, um, uh, my smallest bill's a five, so I guess that's what I've got to give tonight. Oh, ooh, i got a one tonight. I'll be oneness. I actually had a man some years ago. He had brought a visitor to church and the, the offering is, is starting to pass by. And he had reached in his wallet and pulled out a $1 bill. And he saw the visitor, as the plate is passing, he saw the visitor looking at his $1 bill. And so he smiled and said, I'm oneness. And the visitor looked at him. And the visitor had three dollar bills and said, well, I'm Trinitarian. He told me, he said, I was convicted. Because I brought this visitor to church and they were giving three times what I was giving. Well, food for thought. Israel never gave to God haphazardly. They always prepared something ahead of time. And we ought to do the same. We ought to prepare to give an offering to God. All right? Now, look, God's not obligated to give to you until you first give to him. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. I know it's three minutes after nine. Give me just a few minutes. I'm almost done. Can you testify? Is that true? I'm almost done. I got two more passages of Scripture, and we're finished. All right, so just a couple minutes. Luke chapter 6 verse 38 says this. Give and it shall be given unto you. Wait a minute. We want to jump right on to that part about it shall be given unto you. But what's the prerequisite? Give. Before God's obligated to give to us, we have to give. Right. So start over. Read that verse. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over. Shall men give unto your bosom now, now, now look, we want that blessing, don't we? We want that good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over blessing. Right. Yes, sir. Come on, let's be honest. Do we want that? Right. Is that the way we want God to give to us? Come on now. Yes, sir. Well, of course it is. But God says, I'll do that if first you give. And then he says something very interesting. In this same context, what does he say? For with the same measure, with the same that, measure you all, that you meet with all, it shall be measured, it to, shall you be again. measured to you again. So in other words, if you're just going to come to church and give God the least amount that's in your wallet, guess how God's going to turn around and bless you? With the very least that he can. That's what you give God. That's what God gives you. Church, this is, this, is not, this is not about me trying to push money, money, money. And, and as I said, it's been years since I've even addressed this subject. And when I get through here, you're probably not going to hear it again for a long time. But I am trying to show you that the only way you can really be blessed of God is when you learn 
to take the limits off in the way you give to him. Whatever measure you use in your giving is the same measure God will use in his blessing. That's Bible. All right. Now, musicians come. The last passage we won't take the time to read. Um, but you can reference it in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 10 through 16. My time is up. But this is the story of the widow of Zarephath. We've talked about this even recently. The fact of the matter is this woman did not give to God out of her abundance. She gave God all she had left. She said, when I finish this meal, my son and I will starve to death. There's nothing else. And we have no way of getting anything else. Now, you want to talk about somebody that couldn't afford to give? This woman couldn't afford to give. If you're looking at it naturally, she could not afford to give. But the man of God said to her, Go. And do what you said. But, he said, first, first, make me a little cake. Didn't you understand what I just said, preacher? I only have enough to make a small cake for me and my son. That's it. Yeah, I understood. Go make me one first. And then, go make one for you and your son. You're not getting this, preacher. Yeah, I'm getting it. Are you getting it? You know, I don't see where she questioned. I don't see where that conversation ever went on. But the man of God said, if you go and make one for me first, this is what he said, then you can make one for yourself and your son. He said, because God says... That the barrel of meal shall not waste and the cruise of oil shall not fail until God sends rain on the earth. You give me that last part, part you've got right now and God has promised he's going to see you through this famine. Now, I do not believe that God filled the barrel or that God filled the cruise. You know what I believe? I can't prove this to you. But I believe it's exactly word for word what the prophet said. It didn't waste. And the cruise didn't fail. So that says to me, Brother Self, she used the last little bit to make it for the prophet. And he said, now, go fix one for you and your son. Well, there's, there's nothing there. Well, go look. Oh, wait a minute. There's enough for one more meal. So she made that. Next meal time, go look again. I don't think the, the barrel was ever full. I think there was always just enough. See, that's where we're, we're praying, God, let me win the sweepstakes. Or worse yet, let me win the lottery. You know what? You've got a much better chance of a greater return if you'll take everything you want to spend on the lottery and just give it to God. Um, but what we want is we want God to give us a bakery. But Jesus said, pray, give us today our daily bread. If you'll give me enough to get through today, I'll be back tomorrow to ask again. And you know what he'll do? He'll give you enough to get through tomorrow. And then you'll be back the next day, and he'll give you enough to get through the next day. But don't expect him to just hand you a bakery so you never have to worry.
He wants you to depend on him. And I believe that's exactly how it worked for this widow. I believe every time she went back to the barrel, there was just enough for one more meal. Every time she went back to that cruise of oil, there was just enough oil there to do what she needed to do. So don't expect God because you give some offering to him to suddenly turn you into an overnight millionaire. But you can expect that if I'll give God what's his and I'll give freely above what's his, my barrel will never waste and my cruise will never fail. God will take care of me every day if I'll just do what he asked me to do. Let's stand and lift our hands to the Lord, everybody.